Ready graphics? Ready theme? Up to that point, we had not had the opportunity on any of the shows we were on to write an episode that uh, had a gay character in it. So this was particularly important to me. It was at a very difficult time politically and emotionally because we were still in, heavily in the midst of the aid crisis. Hi, I'm Lauren Milberger. And I'm Jesse Mullins. And welcome back for part two of our discussion. This time, along with Matt, we've invited Gary Donzig, one of the writers from Murphy Brown, as well as former executive producer of the show from seasons five and six, along with Steve Peterman, who we've had on the show before. Particularly, though, we thought that this would be a really great panel discussion to discuss Come Out, Come Out, Wherever You Are, which aired March 4th, 1992, and is one of the more famous or infamous episodes of Murphy Brown, other than Dan Quayle, <laughs> because of how groundbreaking it was to have have a gay character on the show. Yes, this is a discussion that was, I would say, as much a treat to be a part of as to join in on. I Getting to hear Gary Donzig's experience uh, working on this piece and the, the personal stories that came out of it, uh, hearing uh, Matt connect with Gary. I think, I think we made a love match. I don't want to, I don't want to take too much credit, but y'all, I think we, I think we made a kindred a kindred spirit love match between Matt and Gary. So I think you should listen and enjoy. Yes, it's probably one of my my favorite interviews. Mm -hmm. But then again, the most current interview is always my <laughs> it's favorite <true>. interview. <laughs> it's true. So enjoy. Bye. Bye. Will a mystery guest please sign in? Gary Danzig. And what do you do, Gary? I am a writer and I have been a writer producer on anything specific? Ah, so you want <laughs> you want you want the well, whole I thing. Oh, give the people what they want, Gary. Wanted to remind people, you know, that this is the Murphy Brown podcast, yes, just okay. in case they didn't know. So we, we talk uh, we, about you all the time. Oh, well, how how great. Um, yes, I was on Murphy Brown for 6 years from the beginning of the show. I came on after the pilot episode. And um, I was there until the end of the sixth season. Um, and my writing partner and I, Steve Peterman, um, we took over the show after the end of the fourth season. So we became the executive producers for the fifth and sixth seasons. Well, we're so happy to have you on. Well, I'm happy to be here. And this is your first time meeting Matt, correct? Yes, I, I have seen Matt on YouTube podcast, but I have not met him. Well, it really means a lot. I'm, I'm so glad that uh, that I guess my, my YouTube precedes me, I suppose. It's, it's a real <laughs> honor to meet you. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. As well with all of you. Yeah, Gary, I mean, we've been saying your name for years now ah, on well, the podcast. So to finally get you here saying your name is a big thing for us. I'm the shy, reclusive one. So I, I tend to hold back longer than any of the others. <laughs> We know we have learned from interviewing pairs, people who are parts of pairs of writers. Yes. There's always one. There's always the one that's the you. So actually, I, Lord, am I correct? You're the first of yes. your ilk of the writing partners to join us? You're the first of the shy one to come on. Of the shy ones. So obviously, we've come together to talk about one particular episode. But if, if very briefly, if you want to tell us how you got to Murphy Brown, because uh, I know you and Steve, unlike the other writers in the show, have more of a, a different background because you started as actors. Yes. Um, we came to writing fairly late. 
Um, we had both been actors. We met doing a, a George Bernard Shaw play at the Old Globe in San Diego, Miss Alliance. Um, Steve had the really funny role. I had the expositional role. Um, we didn't particularly get along. We didn't particularly like each other's acting, but we wound up writing together and having a hugely successful career and becoming friends. And over the years, I think we came to uh, understand and respect each other's acting. Um, we started writing in 86. Um, we were on a a uh, cable show to begin with, one of the first run syndication shows called Rocky Road on the Ted Turner Network. And then we moved over to, um, what did we do? We did Full House for six episodes and left when we realized it wasn't the right show for us. So we just kind of said, we're out of here. We then went to a different world for 13 episodes. Uh, the writers, the writer's guild strike happened and we didn't go back to a different world because we weren't asked. And instead we wound up on Murphy Brown. And from Murphy Brown, we then went on to do a series of shows. But we were the guys who stayed with shows for longer than a lot of writers stay with shows. Well, I would love to know uh, something you said is that you came on after the pilot of Murphy Brown. Yes. Um, I'd love to know what it was like to join after, uh, that is such a strong pilot. Right. With such a clear character creation right off the get. And I'm curious about what it's like to join that writer's room well, coming off of that. You know, all the writers joined after the pilot. None of us, except I think Corby Siamis, had worked with Diane on the pilot. Um, so we were all in the same boat, except that all the other guys were at least, and Corby, they were all like 10 years younger than us, but they were already producers. And we were just executive mm -hmm. story editors. So we came up through the ranks rather quickly. They all left the show after the end of the second year. We stayed for three and four. And then, as I said, became executive producers. Um, you know, the, it was a great writer's room. And, um, you know, you discover as, as you when you get on a staff after a pilot has been done, some of the characters are clearly defined, like Miles, Murphy, uh, Frank, uh, no, not Frank, sorry, Corky, and, and um, uh, Jim. They were all very, very clearly defined characters. Frank, played by Joe Regalbuto, was mostly Murphy's best friend and an ace reporter, but he didn't have a lot of specific defining characteristics other than that, you know, he was kind of a womanizer. And over the years, some of the characters developed, uh, when we were all developing the characters, they took on qualities of our own. Some of our neuroses crept in to the characters. Some of our, uh, our better qualities crept in. Um, there was an episode that I, I don't know if you've done it yet. It was um, Frank's parents um, no, yeah, that's season three. We haven't gotten to that yet. Okay, well, yeah, we're almost yeah. we're about to close out season two. But. Okay, well, in season three, Stephen and I wrote an episode um, called Jingle Hell, which was about giving money to <laughs> charity at Christmas, which was a very important um, subject for Stephen and me. We we felt very strongly about gift giving and gift giving in terms of 
doing something. We were people who had so much in our lives. What, what was the point of giving each other another tchotchke? You know, it was like, mm -hmm. let's do something meaningful to take the money, give it to charity. The episode that contained this gay character was extremely important to me because I'm gay. Up to that point, we had not had the opportunity on any of the shows we were on to write an episode uh, that uh, had a gay character in it. So this was particularly important to me. And it was at a very difficult time uh, politically and emotionally because we were still in, heavily in the midst of the aid crisis. And um, uh, so... I'm drifting from your original question, though. Well, you gave me a new one, which is uh, you talk about getting to write this character, getting yes. to write the story about this character. How did that conversation come up? Was it the idea of the character first or no. was it the scenario first? This came out of the writer's room. A writer came into uh, the room one morning and he was... Uh, Let's see, it was the fourth year. He had come on in the fourth year. He wasn't on staff in the third year. And he came into the writer's room, and uh, he was newly married um, and had a baby, a new baby. And um, this was a fairly important job for him. He had a, had a few other good jobs, but this was really uh, a, a real major job for him. And he came into the writer's room, and he just started telling this dream that he had. And we, we said to him, you do know that's a homoerotic dream, right? And he said, no, go on. You all had dreams like that, haven't you? And he looked around the room and all the guys shook their heads. And I said, I have. And that was how the beginning of the episode happened. So Stephen and I went off and said, wow, this is a good idea for an episode. So we went to Diane and we you know, pitch the idea in the room. And um, that's how, that was the impetus for the beginning. Now, there were a lot of things that happened in writing the episode that we can talk about. Um, specific things, uh, obviously, in the episode that we'll probably discuss. How those things came about. Because a lot of them came out of my life. Um, some of them came out of other people's lives. Uh, but, you know, writing an episode... The, the ideas come from all over the place. And, you know, then you write your outline and then as you start to write your script, you embellish on that and it becomes, you know, richer and fuller and hopefully better. Was there, I'm so curious if there was any pushback or anyone with the network who is like, we can't do a gay episode or like standards of practice is like, you can't make fun of gay people like this. Well, you know, it's interesting, Matt. I don't look at us. Uh, I don't look at this episode and think that we made fun of gay people. One of the things when we, we pitched the episode, I said one of the most important things to me was that this was not going to be somebody who had AIDS. The episode was not going to be about AIDS. And this was going to be a character who was comfortable with who he was as a gay man, who didn't, want, or didn't hide himself was out there, he, you know, and, and um, Diane was very supportive of that. The network was nervous, I think, about the episode, and they showed it by putting the episode on on a night that wasn't the Murphy Brown night. 
Murphy Brown was on at nine o'clock on Monday nights. For some bizarre reason, they decided to show this episode on Wednesday night because they told us, well, we, we have this um, new show coming on. Um, I can't even remember what the show was. Um, it was, uh, uh, what was the movie Harrison Ford did? Um, the, the big one. Uh, was, it a, was it the Working Girl like, Pilot? The what? Which one? The wor- there was a series of Working Girl. No, the, the, the show. that was on NBC. No, their show didn't succeed. It, it was uh, uh, the Temple of Doom. What character was that? Indiana Jones? Indiana oh, Jones. Oh, was it young Indiana oh. Jones? Oh, yes. right. It was an Indiana Jones yeah. pilot. And they said, well, this episode is so strong. Oh. We want to put it up against the Indiana Jones episode. Oh, and, young Indiana Jones was on ABC. Now I'm getting yes. it. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That's bull. <laughs> because what you're doing is burying the episode. Because nobody's going to be looking for Murphy Brown on a Wednesday night at, maybe it was 8 o'clock. It may have been nine o'clock or 10, um, but we said nobody's going to be looking for the episode. So our feeling was that they were so nervous about the episode that they tried to bury it. Interestingly enough, we didn't win the time slot, but we did get attention. And I'm very pleased to say Stephen and I were nominated for an Emmy for that episode. Um, which came as a total surprise to us because we assumed, ah, nobody in the industry saw this because it wasn't on nine o'clock on Monday night. So yes, there were, there was no real pushback to Stephen and me. Diane may have had pushback. We don't know that because she usually at that point, we weren't executive producing, so we didn't deal with the network. She may have been dealing with the network and they may have been pushing back. But just, you know, it was clear that when you move an episode in the fourth year out of the blue to another night at another time, you're trying to hide it. I definitely want to stay on this this episode, um, but you made me think about something that I'm curious about. When you became the executive producers, yes, what types of pushbacks did you experience? Did you experience any at that point in the show's career? Oh, let's see. Because um, you had some big topics. You know... There was so much stress, to be honest with you. I think I may have blocked a great deal of pushback that we got, you know, just in order to survive and stay healthy. So um, I don't remember a lot of pushback. I know that there was great anxiety for the first episode out of the gate because Stephen and I wrote a one-hour episode that uh, answered Dan Quayle's accusation that Murphy was unfit to be a mother. And it was a one-hour episode. We had only done, I think, one of those in the past. Uh, I think Diane had written either in the third or the fourth season. Thir- the third Di- season. Third? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Okay. There's, I, I take that back. Uh, yours was, the, that would have been the third. There, oh. Diane wrote one in the, the second season and the third season when Murphy's parents come. Oh, uh, and then okay. the one when they they think that they've died and they experience right, the their plane funeral. crash. That was the one yeah. I Those are two of my was favorites. Yeah. Okay. I love that episode. Yeah. So we wrote um, we wrote that one hour episode. There was a lot of anxiety, a lot of nerves about that. There was so much going on. Rush Limbaugh had gotten a copy of the script. He had, you know, a copy had been stolen and Jeez. sent to him. He was reading passages on the air. There was a cease and cease and desist 
note that went to him from the, the lawyers, you know, you can't do this. So, you know, that was that was our entry into being executive producers. So that was um, uh, that was kind of tough. But I don't remember specific pushback. What I do remember is in the fifth season, we suddenly had a baby. We discovered along the way the audience didn't really want to see Murphy with a baby. Being pregnant and going through all that Sturm und Drang, that was great. But Murphy was a career woman, and people tuned in to see Murphy the career woman. Murphy at the office, Murphy doing reporting. So suddenly we had a baby. So we, we limited the baby to probably, I don't know, six or eight episodes out of the 24 or 26 in the fifth season. And in the sixth season, the baby pretty much disappeared to, you know, a few episodes. Uh, the fifth season was a tough go because suddenly we were being criticized. The critics were saying it's not the same show and people were falling off. So we had to do a course correction. You know, it's the thing that you don't think about. When the decision was made to have a baby, that was fabulous. But the decision to have a baby on the show was not so fabulous. So we had a course correct somewhere during the fifth season and into the sixth season. We were right back on track. Critics, reviewers, everybody was saying, wow, the show is back. It's great. Everything's going well. And that, that was a hard slog. Yeah, I can imagine. That's a, that's a lot of pressure on an entire country is, you know, tuning in to watch for some reason that really has nothing to do with why you're watching. More eyes right. on you. Yeah. Yeah. I would be curious for the episode come out, come out wherever you are, that you use your own personal experience and yes. how that influenced the story and what sections of it did. Um, well, there's there's a thing early on in the episode where they're guessing whether um, the character is gay. Um, not an uncommon thing in those days in offices. When, when uh, Stephen and I joined Murphy Brown, the first day, Diane took us all to lunch. And Diane said at the table, oh, I don't know anything about your personal lives. Everybody, tell me, who are you? What do you do? And so we started going around the table. And one of the guys said, um, I'm not going to name names. But one of the guys said, uh, oh, well, I'm single, but I'm looking. And one of the other guys at the table said, oh, don't look over here at me. And I thought, oh, damn, I'm on another series with a lot of homophobes and I got to deal with this now. So they came around and it was my turn. I was the next to the last. And I said, well, I've been with the same guy for 25 years and we have five dogs and three cats. And uh, so I guess I'm your token gay on staff. And there was like dead silence. And uh, Stephen, my, my writing partner, said, that's my partner. And, um, <laughs> and then he went on to talk about his wife and um, the fact that they didn't have a baby yet, but they wanted one. Um, and um, what I found out the next day, um, one of the writers said to me, oh, my God, we were all sitting at the table thinking, what did I say? Did I say anything insulting? Did I make a comment? 
one of the other writers came into my, in fact, several writers came into the office and they almost said exactly the same thing, one after another. Wow, I, I, I went home and I told my wife, we have a gay guy on staff and he like just came out and said he was gay. And isn't that great? It's just like, he just said it. And I thought to myself, oh my God, it's 1988. And it's like, I'm announcing the fact that, you know, I'm, I, I'm the king of Prussia. It, it was it was <laughs> odd, but they were all wonderful, not at all homophobic. Um, great, great. It was a great staff. Everybody was wonderful. But it's interesting the things that you have to deal with, because we had been on another show, and there were all guys, and there were two women who came in once a week um, just to give the woman's point of view. And they were called the housewives at the table. Um, and all these guys who were all super heterosexual, you wouldn't believe what they said about women, the way they talked about women. And I finally said, hey, you know, guys, I'm the only gay guy at the table. I love women. I adore women. I respect women. I can't believe that you all talk about women like this. I think I like women more than any of you do. So I thought, oh, you know. Thank you. Yeah. My, my initial feeling on Murphy was, oh, damn. And then it was like, no, this is a great group of guys. But it, I must admit, it surprised me, the surprise that some of them had, that I was so open about it. Um, as for other things, um, so in the, in the early part of the episode, Corky, when they're guessing about if the guy is gay, uh, Cork. Corky says, oh, you can tell it by how he looks at his foot. If you tell him he's got something on his shoe, that was at, right out of my life. Because back, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, when I was growing up, there were two ways that you, you know, they would tell if you were gay. Look at your heel. If you put your foot inward, you were uh, straight. If you put your foot, look back to, over your shoulder, you were gay. If you looked at your fingernails, if you curled them in towards you, you were um, straight. If you splayed your fingers out and oh, looked at them, you were, yeah, you oh, were gay. Geez. So, you know, we incorporate, we originally had both of those things, but then we cut it down to just the one. Um, at the end of the episode, the speech that, that uh, the character gives, a uh, wonderful actor, Brian. Um, uh, uh, he gives a speech where he says, I've been to too many funerals to hide in the closet. Well, I had been to three funerals a day for years. When Stephen and I started writing in 86, he, he would always tell people, Gary would go to the hospital in the morning, come to work, sit on the couch, cry. We'd write comedy. At lunch, he'd go to a different hospital, come back to work, cry for 10 minutes, and then we'd write comedy. And then on the way home, he'd stop at another hospital and then go home, unless we had to go back to the office, in which case I'd sit on the couch for 10 minutes, cry, and we'd write more comedy. Um, that's what it was like in those days. Um, 92 was maybe starting to lighten up a little bit, but you know, I still had half of my phone book was gone. Um, there were still people in hospitals. There were still friends dying. So uh, that speech was, you know, right out of my life. It's, it was important to be who I was. And also, I had been in my relationship since 1968. 
It was now 1992. And, you know, I mean, we went everywhere together. Everybody knew we were a couple. We both had the same name, Gary and Gary. Everybody knew us as the Garys. So, you know, I, I, I wasn't hiding. At the same time, you... There, in some circles, there was not a good response. Some staffs, I'm sure, did not necessarily want a gay person on staff. You know, it depended upon who was running the show. I'm so glad you mentioned that speech at the end. It really takes my breath away because they've been having such a silly conversation at that up to that point, and then it, it really like rips the 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 um, you know it rips the curtain down or however you want to phrase it. Um, to realize like what's going on behind the scenes with that character, like what's behind that character's openness and right. his, his perceived comfort at being open and out in the, in the workplace. And you realize just like how much he realizes he has to lose by, by every minute that he keeps hidden. Right. Um, suddenly it's, it's just so uh, like I, I gasped audibly gasped when I, when I saw that episode and heard that. But line. that's why it was important for him early on in the episode to be so, you know, to be smart to be aware. And when they're trying to guess whether or not he's gay, in the first scene, he walks into the elevator and Murphy says, you haven't answered our questions. We don't know anything about you. Where did you go to school? Who are you? And he's, he says something like, went to school at Harvard, you know, was this? And yes, I'm gay. Because we wanted it right, right out there. And um, oh, another thing in the episode, um, my next door neighbor, was a psychiatrist. And I went to him and I said, okay, this is the dream that this guy had. And what does this dream mean to you? And he said to me, well, new job, new wife, new baby, a lot of insecurity. Um, he could be having anxiety about it. It could manifest in a homoerotic dream or he could be gay. So interestingly enough, that writer after two wives and three children, actually came out of the closet when he was in his early 50s. Yay, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, Yay. So, um, but, but it, it was interesting because we used that in the episode too. Miles goes, Miles goes to six psychiatrists and we only show three of them, but it's referenced that he went to six. And they all say the same thing to him. Well, you have this dream. It could mean you're this or that, or, <laughs> or it could mean you're gay. And so each one, female psychiatrist, male psychiatrist. Um, and, um, you know, Miles is an incredibly ang anxious, neurotic character. You know, he, he gets a hangnail. He thinks his finger's falling off. He has indigestion. He thinks he has cancer. He has a dream. He thinks he's gay. He doesn't initially think he's gay until it's suggested to him. The thought is planted. Now, the writer who had the dream, I'm not sure what he thought when we said to him, you know, that's a homoerotic dream because his reaction was what I said before. Well, everybody's had dreams like this. Now, the other guys may have all had dreams like that, too, but none of them may have wanted to admit it. Um, One of my favorite things about this episode is the fact that we throw this confusion in Frank's mind. Yeah. And we end with that lovely confusion because Rick being played by, yeah, Brian McNamara. So right. such a wonderful man being surprised that Frank doesn't play for their team. And I'm 
I'm curious about that decision in the writing to mess with Frank as kind of a bank shot. Okay, well, well, this comes out of something that Stephen and I had been thinking about. We had developed Frank's character over the years, a guy who can't, we, we actually list the things in the episode. He can't have a successful relationship with a woman. He, he only has mm. three dates and that's it. Um, he, the episode that I was talking about that came out of my life that we didn't, that's in a later fifth or sixth season, the anniversary party that Frank gives for his parents for their 50th anniversary at Murphy's house. That was the anniversary party I gave for my parents at, at my good friend, Marsha Mason's house. Marsha Mason at the time was a major star and I was going to give my parents a party and Marsha said, well, take my house, do it at my house. And of course, everybody was thrilled because all my relatives wanted to meet Marsha Mason. <laughs> and so we had developed Frank's character in this way that he was uh, uh, you know, a neat freak. Everything had to be in place. He had certain qualities that you could attribute to either a highly neurotic straight man or a gay man, you know. And so we thought we should bring Frank out of the closet. We should, when we took over the show, we said we'd like Frank to come out of the closet. It'll be the first major character on television that is a regular on a series that will be gay. And we built it up. And then Frank can go with the struggle at the age of whatever he was, 45, 50, of realizing, oh, my God, my whole life, I've been not being honest with myself. But the, the decision was made not by us, by a number of other people. Um, no, we would not be allowed to bring Frank out of the closet. Um, mm. You know, it's interesting. You look at periods of time. Stephen and I went into development in 1994, 1994 to 96. We pitched a number of episodes. We, we wrote a, a number of series to the network. We wrote one on spec ourselves. It was about Stephen and me, two guys who are in Hollywood working together. We made them musicians so that we could uh, include music in every episode. One was gay, one was straight. The studio said, absolutely not. The network will never buy a lead character as gay. I wanted to pitch the series that about me and my girlfriend. When I met my partner, my significant other, my life partner, in those days, you didn't call the person your husband. There was no marriage. Um, when I met him, I was living with a wonderful woman named Mimi and very much in love with her. I had met her in Summerstock. In fact, she's coming out to visit me in two weeks and we're going to spend five days together. Um, when I met Gary, uh, he was married actually to Marsha Mason. You know, it, life, life takes you in certain directions. So I wanted to do a series about Mimi and me which of course became Will and Grace a few years later. Mm -hmm. But nobody would let us do it at that point. Yeah. You know, it's all in the timing. When Ellen came out of the closet, it was amazing. It was fabulous. And we had been thinking, okay, it's better that she is actually gay and coming out of the closet. It's, that's a different kind of revelation. But still, I felt we missed the opportunity 
of bringing Frank out of the closet because it would have yeah. been new and different and revolutionary for television. But, you know, mm-hmm. no gay characters at that point. It's interesting, except for the actual coming out, a lot of what you're talking about is what I heard, I think, on the Friends reunion. And I think, Matt, you may have covered this as well, that Chandler was written as gay. Yeah. Oh. And they weren't allowed to bring him out. Oh, I didn't But see I don't it. think they actually talked about it. They just sort of knew that they couldn't. But ah. the same thing that you were saying, how it was written, you know, from particularly, I believe, David Crane's point of view, that that was the original concept. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting because it's obviously the 90s, very specific place right. and time. And Matt, Matt, you said something earlier about, you know, uh, the episode was silly up to the point of that speech. Um, I, you know, you're doing a sitcom. You, you have to make it funny. You look for every opportunity in every way that you can make it funny. And it's a delicate subject in its own way. So you are looking for the ways. And of course, there are going to be people who are going to be offended, people who don't think you handle it right. You know, every little thing will be nitpicked. What was interesting to me was the morning after the episode, we came into the office and there was a telephone call from somebody in Boston, and they said they specifically wanted to speak to me. And and it may have been to Stephen and me. Um, I can't remember, but I picked up the phone. And and the man on the other uh, other end of the uh, phone said, I have to tell you what your episode meant last night. I'm in Boston. I run a hospice for men who are dying. And he said, about two minutes into Murphy Brown, we started receiving calls, turn on, turn on the show, turn on the show. And he said, at the end of the show, this is hard for me to talk about. Um, He said, at the end of the episode, there were so many men in in, in their beds crying. And they said, you have to call and thank them because there was a gay man on television who was healthy and proud and out. And that meant so much to us to be represented in that way. And, you know, when you're doing television, which for the most part, uh, particularly sitcoms, particularly sitcoms in those days, which could be fairly inane, when you get a call like that from a hospice where men are dying, uh, wow, it doesn't get any more moving or it doesn't make you feel any better um, for having written something like that. Yeah, gosh, you know, it's um, one of the things that, that I've noted in doing the, the, all the research that I've done is um, how seldom at that time anyone could have seen a positive depiction, particularly we, we talked about this um, before, you know, before this call. Uh, I, I talked to Jesse and Lauren about how um, there was a there was a period where it was really hard for sitcoms to talk about anything gay because the topic had was perceived as being so serious and and um, uh, uh, and, and sad essentially um, and so, yeah I can I can only imagine what it must have meant to see uh, somebody who is happy with his life on screen and for it not to be an episode about tragedy. Right. There must have been just so much of that. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about like there were there were certainly dramas and there's certainly like, I, you know, I'm thinking of a long time companion, other like really serious movies of the time. Uh, but to have to have that one character be like, 
to have gone through the tragedy and then also emerged and be happy with himself. Uh, I, you know, it, it's hard for me to think of any other character like that on TV at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there weren't a lot. I, I know Golden Girls did one where um, Lois Nettleton played a woman who comes to visit Betty White. Um, I know, was it Golden Girls that had the gay brother? Uh, somebody had a yeah, gay... Yeah, Blanche's brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there had been the rare episode done. But once we were into the AIDS crisis, I think it became more complicated. And uh, I don't remember when the movie and early Frost was on, but I think that was sometime in the 80s, in the mid to mid to late 80s, maybe. But that was about, uh, you know, a, a gay man dying of AIDS. And the, the famous line from um, Sylvia Sidney, was it? The grandmother who says, it's a disease, not a disgrace. And but, you know, it, it was a very touchy subject, having a healthy, positive, you know, gay man. And that was that was very important to both of us that Brian's character be um, be that way. Are you aware at all of any of the the casting of Brian? Well, I'm imagining well, the casting process of that character. You know, that's an interesting story because. Brian came in to read, oh, there, I, don't, I don't remember how many actors, uh, and we cast another actor. Um, lovely actor, perfect for the role, gave a wonderful reading, but by Tuesday, we realized he felt uncomfortable doing the role. He didn't oh. really want to be, he real, I think he realized it was more than, than he wanted. He was like everybody in those days. You know, it was it was really courageous for Billy Crystal to be seen as gay and as gay as that character was in um, Mary Hartman. Um, I'm not sure what soap. years those were. Oh, late 70s. Yes. Late they 70s. Was soap. Okay. Oh, so Mary Hartman had that, that had, was so oh, yeah. Right. There, but there were there was two couples. There were two there were two gay characters on Mary Hartman as well. That would have been anyway. It was difficult, so we had to let that actor go, and we brought Brian in, and Brian was hmm. so secure, so comfortable. Yeah, you know, it's like uh, I I always love when I was younger, particularly all of my straight male friends who were so comfortable with their sexuality that they would hug me, they would kiss me. They, there was no question that they were straight. They had no interest in me sexually, but they had no problem. You know, I was another guy to them and, you know, give me a hug, give me a kiss. That was no problem. So Brian was so relaxed, so easy. And I think he was just spectacular. Uh, in in the episode. And I don't use words like that very often when it comes to television, because I also think to a great extent, it was courageous on his part to take on that role. It's such a great contrast with Miles, like his discomfort and anxiety and neuroses. And actually, it reminds me a bit of the episode of Frasier where Frasier's station manager thinks that they're on a date and is the station manager. So, like you said, comfortable and and serene and um, happy in his, his sexuality compared to Fraser. And, and, you know, then you've got Niles who or miles who is so um, swept up in the, but what am I, but what am I? Something that I think a lot of gay people have gone through. Right. And uh, the, the gay guy in the office has none of that. He has none of the, but what am right. I? Uh, he's just, he, he just, he knows himself. When Stephen and I were 
becoming writers. When we got together and started to write, we we decided to write a, a, a spec script, which is a, a script that you write to show to people. And you write it in those days, you would write it for an, uh, a show that was on the air. The show that you wrote it for would never get to see it. We didn't read any Murphy Brown spec scripts because we might be doing something similar to it and we couldn't afford to get sued. So we knew that Family Ties wasn't going to read the script that we wrote. But the episode that we wrote, and this was 1984, was that Alex meets a guy in his future Entrepreneurs of America class, which we created. And um, he gets along great with the guy. They're fabulous together. And he says, hey, come over to my house because he wants to introduce the guy to his sister because his sister was dating losers. And his parents said, Alex, if you wanted to meet somebody good, bring every one of your friends. So he brings the guy home and it's a wonderful evening. And at the end of, uh, of dinner, Alex is walking the guy to the door and Alex and, and the guy says to him, Alex, I think you're wonderful. Uh, I think you're great. But to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm just breaking up. I'm just getting out of a relationship. And I really don't want to get into a new one. So thank you very much. But I, I, I'm not interested in you in that way. So we'll just be friends. And of course, Alex's reaction in the episode was, am I not attractive enough? Why don't you want me? So we were doing that trope back in 1984, almost before it was actually a trope. And that was a spec mm -hmm. script that we wrote. That script got us in every door that we, huh. we knocked on because huh, everybody great. thought that script was so wonderful and so original, which was so interesting that people would say, wow, nobody's done this kind of thing on, on a sitcom. And um, yeah, so... But we never got that episode produced. So we use some of that in, of course, other scripts in the future. On Suddenly Susan, we did um, an episode with a gay character. Um, that was Nestor Carbonell, who is Hispanic. And his brother comes from Cuba. And his brother is gay. And it's how does a Hispanic man deal with a gay brother? And they all wind up going to a gay bar together. And, you know... Of course, at the gay bar, Brooke, who's big and tall, and one of the comments about her is, "Wow, you you look amazingly good for a, for for a gay man." And and she says, "I'm not gay. I'm a woman." They said, "Come on, with those shoulders." So, <laughs> you know, you get to use all the things in your life. Now, I would be curious because obviously this script that you presented was to everybody inventive. Was, did you ever try to pitch in a room before this episode of Murphy Brown on another show a similar a topic or an, a queer character and got you know backlash? Or had you not tried at all? Well, on the shows we had been on prior to Murphy, um, we were on a, a, technically a kid's show um, on the Ted Turner Network. Then we went to Full House. Um, then we went to A Different World. Um, you know, I don't think there was any interest or any chance of doing a gay episode. Uh, also, we were on the first season of Full House just for six episodes. We were on the uh, back 13 of A Different World, which was the first season. Not necessarily the kind of episode you would do in a first season in 1986, 87, 88 
uh, that would be an episode you would probably get to like we did around 1992. So what do you think changed in in attitude? The world. You know, the, the, the world began to evolve. You know, it, the tragedy of AIDS shifted everything because gay men said what what Brian's character said. I'm not in the closet anymore. You know, I, I'm out. And suddenly gay men were coming out all over the place in every profession, you know, slowly. It wasn't like the doors were flying open everywhere, but gay men had to band together and form, you know, act up, you know, the gay men's health crisis. Um, you, you, you knew that your life might end. You didn't know whether or not, you know, you didn't know whether or not you had been exposed to it 25 years before and suddenly it was showing up. But you did know, watching your friends die hideous deaths, that, no, I, I am who I am. I, I can't hide it. Now, it just so happened I wasn't hiding it because I was already in a 25-year <laughs> relationship. So that wasn't a, a question for me. But when I went into a meeting, when I went into an office, um, I didn't walk in and say, hey, I'm gay, you know? Um, when I would speak to, during the Murphy years and after that, when I would speak to college classes, to I would go back to my university and speak, or I would go to USC or UCLA, I would talk for, I'd say, at least 15, 20 minutes, a half an hour. And at that point, I would say, what's important to do is write episodes that are meaningful for you, episodes that you care about. Like the episode of Murphy that we wrote about giving money to charity, which is incredibly important to me. Or the episode where Miles thinks he's gay because I'm a gay man. I wanted people to see me, know me, and then I would say to them, I'm gay. Because the number of people, the number of young students who would come up to me at the end of the class and say, wow, I, I didn't know you were gay. And so you can have a really successful career. You know, these are 18, 19, 20-year-old kids and saying, it's so great to know that you're gay and that you're willing to say it. And, and that. But I wanted them to know me first because I didn't want them to make judgments up front. I wanted them to know me and then hear that I was gay. And then if they had had judgments, they would have to reflect upon what they were thinking. Have you seen the the staffing on shows? Like, did that change over the 90s as well? Like, did more people, were, were there more gay writers or like openly gay writers in the rooms? Um, were there? Um, well, it's interesting. <laughs> we hired several writers onto Murphy um, while Diane was still there. One of them, as I told you, came out years later. Another one who was not exactly young, he was in his 30s. He was gay, we all knew he was gay, but he absolutely had a girlfriend and did not, would not admit he was gay. And one day he came to me and he said, I, I, I have to tell you something, I'm gay. And I said, oh, okay, well, we knew that already, but thanks for telling me. <laughs> You know, I mean, it was like, but even then, you know, I don't think people were saying, oh, let's hire a gay guy in staff. 
You know, in those days, they weren't saying, let's hire a black person on staff. Let's hire more women. Um, that really began to shift much, much later. And of course, you know, the brilliance of, of and the courage of Ellen doing what she did, that, that like shifted things. But of course, she, the show was taken off the air the next year. And, you know, this, the ratings, I think, were still good. But I think maybe it was that much too soon. And then along comes Will and Grace. And I so respect Max and David for writing Will and Grace. But when you, when you look at Will and Grace, Sean Hayes, who is one of the best comedians on television, that was a, a character that was hysterically funny. But it was also a gay character that America felt comfortable with because that was the picture they had of gays. Will was much straighter, but he was not the kind. He had his, his qualities, though, that would lead you to think, oh, this guy may be gay. And obviously, he was totally open about it. Uh, so, you know, things shifted, but they shifted slowly, you know? And I don't take anything away at all from Will and Grace and the, the humor, the courage. I mean, it's a, an incredibly funny show written by incredibly good writers, talented actors, the whole thing. But you look at, at what was acceptable as gay on a regular basis, on a, on a weekly basis. Who do you want to see? Do you really want to see a Brian McNamara character or do you want to see Jack? you know, and Jack is hysterically funny, you, you know, but flash forward 20 years, like the revival of Murphy, the things we learn when you take characters from 20 or 30 years earlier, and you then do them 20 or 30 years later, and the audience is seeing older people, and the older people who are trying to be the same characters, but they're older. When you look at Will and Grace 20 years later, Sadly, and I hope I'm not going to hurt anybody's feelings by saying this, as brilliant as Sean Hayes is, the character to me became Step and Fetch It in the gay community. For those of you who don't know Step and Fetch It, back in the 1930s, he was a black man who was so stereotypical of everything that we laughed at about black people in the 1930s. And I think that was part of the problem. The challenge they had with Will and Grace was we had grown far too, you know, much. We had come too far, you know, to, to really watch that kind of silliness. They tried to give Jack more depth. They tried to give him, you know, round him out, make him more colorful. But you, you can't, couldn't get away from what the audience wanted to see. Yeah. And that's a problem. And that's why I think reboots are very hard to do because people mm -hmm. have a memory of something. But when they see it 20 or 30 years later, it's like with the same actors. Now, if you're going to redo the whole show and recast it and do a, a new version, that's one thing. But the same actors, it's it's very, very different seeing a 70 year old Murphy than seeing a 40 yeah. year old Murphy. Yeah. And also something that we talked about even with those revivals was uh, the audience's taste for certain comedic styles yes. have changed a lot. Yes. And so having people not be able to prep and watch something like Murphy ahead of time and remember that style of sitcom right. being thrown into that 
and not being familiar with it was also very jarring, I think, for a lot of people. Right. I, I don't watch sitcoms anymore. I, I can't think of a sitcom. I've tried a few of them, and they're just not for me anymore. I, I have... You know, I, I have to finish reading Tolstoy. I, I'm deep into Dostoevsky. <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't know how many years I have left. There were too many of the great novels that I was uh, foolishly lax about when I was young. I, I really don't have time to watch a half an hour of television. That's pretty meaningless. That's fair. Well, I think a lot of the classic sort of, you know, multi-camera sitcoms, because which we touched on before you dropped in, and I know Diane has talked about, is that they're shorter now for more commercials. And so there, there isn't, yes. you know, the depth that used to be there that I loved in sitcoms. But then you have something like Hacks, which is 30 minutes on cable. I haven't seen oh, you, it. I, you yeah. should watch it if you'd like to, but it's really good. Oh, it's really? so good. 30 minutes, That's one camera. Gene yeah, Gene Smart. Smart. Right? Oh, mm -hmm. she's she's, she's wonderful in it. Yeah, yeah. Sort of she's this, so yeah, good Joan in this. River sort of hybrid type thing, but they're able to have right. the depth. Like I was shocked when it ended at thirty minutes. I thought it was going to be an hour show. Ah, and I almost kind of went, "Oh, we can do this again." Okay, great. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I wish I I should change my pilot that I'm writing. Um, it's and so that's refreshing. But I think that. The sitcom and the way that you used to write it, I could understand that you wouldn't find anything in it because it's they don't have time to really, you know, go into the depth that the shows did in the 90s and even the early 2000s. I think they're like 22 right. minutes now as opposed to 26 minutes. I think they're probably closer to 21 minutes and four oh, seconds. Well, there you go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's not not a lot of time when you think that you've got four characters, six characters. And in the old days, we, you know. We used to have 26 minutes, then 24 minutes, then 22 minutes. Um, and it gets harder and harder to tell one story, no less two or three, if the, you know, if that's the style of the show. Um, you know, if I do watch things now, I, I tend to watch things like Babylon Berlin uh, on Netflix, which is a, an exquisitely done you know, one hour drama about 1929 Weimar Republic Germany. Um, to me, that's far more, more interesting. And there are just so many documentaries now to catch up on. You know, it's really interesting to me, Gary, that, um, you know, you're, you're so, your interest is, or your attention has moved so much more to, I guess what you call serious stuff. Not that, you know, sitcoms can't be serious, but it, more towards, um, like you're saying, uh, uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and, uh, you know, a look at, at Weimar Berlin. Um, and I'm wondering if you think, like, is that is that your taste or is storytelling in media in general now? Is that where they're is, is are they telling are they telling better stories in drama than in comedy? Um, for me, that this is just personally mm -hmm. for me. Yes. The dramas are more interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's the rare sitcom. And it's the rare sitcom episode where you get to say something really, really meaningful. You know, you, you look back when you do 250 shows, you look back at Lucy. Lucy, it was, you know, breakthrough television. Um, one of the funniest comedians in the history of television. Um, but how many episodes do we remember? We can all name the top 10. You look at any show. And I used to always say to classes, if you're doing 25 episodes a year, Five of them 
you're going to be really proud of and think they're good. Five are going to be okay. Five are going to be mediocre. Five are going to be poor. And five are going to be really embarrassing. And you wish they hadn't been on the air. But if you wind up with five that are good, really good episodes, and out of those five, you remember one a year, well, that's that's a pretty good number because out of the course of 10 years, you'll have your 10 episodes. Vita Vegemin, Chocolate Factory, Grape, you know, <laughs> go down the list. So you go down the list of Murphy. Now, Seinfeld is probably one of those rare shows that has more. But let's face it, we all talk about the masturbation episode. You know, we all talk about the soup Nazi episode. You you can narrow it down to the, down to the 10 top episodes on every single show that are memorable. And the number of times you get to really say something like our Christmas episode, money to charity, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the uh, come out, come out episode where I felt like we were at least saying something. Um, suddenly Susan, we had a couple of episodes that I, I felt like we said something, but for the most part, no, that pretty much goes to the dramas to say something really meaningful. You know, of course, you've got all in the family. You know, you've got Maud. You go back and look at those. The, amazing, isn't it? The, the, the episode, the stories they got to tell. But, you know, that wasn't the, uh, that wasn't the norm, even, in, you know, in those days. It's, it was interesting to go back and see the episode again. I hadn't seen it in years. I found that I laughed out loud several times. Uh, I felt proud that we had actually written the episode. You know, if I were writing that episode today, there would be things that would obviously be different since times have changed. But um, it was a snapshot in time, everything. They're all snapshots in time. And we're now in this new era with, you know, what is it, 50, 100 channels, who knows? who can keep count of it, all the different stories that can be told on all the different platforms. You know, we're watching shows now. All my friends are watching Norwegian mysteries and, you know, Swedish dramas and shows from Denmark. And I'm watching Babylon Berlin in German and reading subtitles. You know, television, um, the vast wasteland, it, it may not be quite as vast a way. It's vast. But it may not be quite the wasteland that it was or was heading towards because of the competition and the plethora of options that we have. But I got to say to you, there's nothing like reading Dostoevsky. (laughs) Matt, uh, is there anything else that you would like to share with us or that you would like to talk about? Oh, boy. Uh, I I just want to thank you, Gary, for putting a really meaningful episode of television on the air. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's so nice to have you. (laughs) 